The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Today, I'm just really excited because today starts the series of the gift of exoneration featuring actual cases of people who have been in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, if you've listened to this show for any time, you know we did run the same series last year with the uh, uh, Northern California Innocence Project out of Santa Clara University. Uh, today, I am very pleased to have a member of the Northwest Innocence Project, Anna Tolan. But before I tell you about Anna, um, let me just tell you a little bit about what happened with this case. Ted Bradford, Ted Lewis Bradford, was um, arrested and convicted and went to prison for nearly 10 years for a rape he did not commit. He was innocent. He was exonerated in 2010, but after after it was determined that he was um, uh, going to get a new trial, he spent another four years waiting, but finally in 2010, he was found not guilty based on the DNA evidence that showed he was the wrong guy. So Ted now... Fortunately, lives with his wife in Yakima, Washington. He's quite a talented musician and a songwriter. Um, he's, needless to say, he's a passionate advocate for the Innocence Project Northwest. And he's here to speak about his case and the causes of wrongful convictions. He has some opinions about that. Good morning, Ted. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. This is, uh, this is great. Uh, this is a subject that we all need to be talking about. All the time, actually. And then Anna Tolan is Deputy Director of the Innocence Project Northwest, and she's a lecturer at University of Washington School of Law. She also um, supervises the clinic there at the Innocence Project Northwest and supervises the students investigating the claims of innocence for Washington Washington prisoners. She oversees post-conviction DNA testing cases under a a grant that's called the National Institute of Ju- uh, Justice Bloodworth Grant, uh, and that's in collaboration with the Washington State Parole Crime Laboratory. Um, that's where the DNA comes in, I guess. And she's a 1992 graduate of Cornell, Cornell Law School. She's practiced criminal defense as a public defender and in private practice in all levels of Washington State and federal court. And now she currently serves as the chair of the board of directors for the Post Prison Education Program. 
and she's a um, past president of the Washington Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. So we have two very exciting guests here, and Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, so um, let's just um, start with, um, let's see, 14 almost 14 years ago, you were arrested, Ted. Yes. And tell me, just can you, I know this is probably somewhat painful to go back and talk about a little bit, but what what was going on leading up to that arrest? What were you doing with your life? Uh, at that time, it was, it was 1996. Um, uh, I was living here in Yakima, Washington, and I uh, was recently married. Uh, we, we had two small children, my son and my daughter. Mm. Uh, I had a good job, uh, so I had some things going for me. You know, I was moving up in the workplace at, at my job, and uh, then all this happened, and I was uh, arrested and wrongly convicted and spent almost 10 years in, in prison for something that I didn't do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and at the time, how old were your children? Uh, my son was two and my daughter was nine months old. Oh, my goodness. And and yeah. what kind of work were you doing? I was working for a, a, a wood mill, uh, a plant that um, they uh, manufactured wood products. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the person that accused you, did you know them? No. Uh, didn't know them, uh, never met them or anything. And how was it that you were identified to begin with? Uh, well, actually, my case is uh, is a false confession case. Uh, I was in jail at the time for uh, a misdemeanor crime, and these detectives came in and and uh, took me to a, another building in the city. Um, and put me in a you know in an interrogation room, and uh, after nine hours of uh, struggling with them, trying to prove my point, you know, and I, I kept trying to get across them that I wasn't the guy that did this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nine hours is a long time, and uh, it was a pretty scary situation, and I just wanted to get out of that, get out of that room because. Uh, uh, like I said, it was pretty scary. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so at the end of the day, uh, I agreed to make a statement just to get out of the situation because mm-hmm. uh, they told me during that interview, well, throughout the whole day, they they were telling me that they found biological evidence at the scene and that they were going to have it tested and prove that I committed the crime. Well, I knew that I didn't the crime so mm-hmm. in my mind I was thinking well if I tell them what they want to hear I can get out of this situation and they'll have that evidence tested and it'll prove my innocence and I'll I'll go home well as it turned out uh, there wasn't evidence left at the scene well at least not evidence that they could test back then because back then they needed like a much larger sample to test from Oh, I see. Sure. Uh, so 
at that time, in 1996, it just came back from the crime labs that there was nothing to find, there was nothing to test, so uh, I ended up having to go to trial uh, with basically nothing to prove my innocence at that time, uh, because, of, you know, a confession is really hard to overcome, you know. Yeah, and, you know, and, and your case is one of a number of cases where DNA has exonerated people after they have conf- falsely confessed. Yes. Uh, if I understand right, it's uh, uh, false confessions make up like at least one quarter of all wrongful convictions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to um, even get my head around um, serving time for for a crime you didn't do. I mean, it's hard enough to get my head around serving time for a crime, much less one that you didn't do. Uh, prison is not for sissies, huh? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah, and it, it was a, a long struggle too. Uh, that whole time I was in prison, you know, I kept trying to, you know, get released. You know, going through the the appeals court process, uh, which takes years. Uh, so I continued to struggle and fight for my freedom the whole time I was in prison. Uh, and it wasn't until about 2001. My brother sent me a, a a packet from the Innocence Project Northwest, and you know I've never heard of you know an Innocence Project, uh, mm. and so he sent me this letter with a questionnaire form on there, and he said, "Well, fill this out and send it off to this organization to see if they can help you." And so I did, and and about 2002 is when the Innocence Project Northwest uh, took on my case and started. Uh, investigating and getting all the court records and everything, and uh, and they worked on my case for over eight years. Uh, they were wow. they were there every step of the way. Uh, they helped file, you know, the proper motions and court papers and everything. They fought to get the DNA tested, which was a struggle in itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'm really grateful for the for everything that they've done. Um, oh, for sure. They, I, they've, they're amazing. They're really amazing. But that is a long time, uh, for sure, that they stuck by you. And and y- your wife, is you still married to the same person you were married to then? No. Um, unfortunately, we got uh, divorced in 1999 while I was still in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it was, you know, it was just too hard on both of us and, yeah, um, you can understand that. So, uh, Anna, when did you get involved? Did you get involved personally, or, or was it the people you're you're supervising? No, unfortunately, I can't take personal responsibility for Ted's exoneration. <laughs> I wasn't um, officially employed at the project. I had been a volunteer with them, but um, our director, Jackie McMurtry, um, was involved in, in supervising Ted's case, and we had a former staff attorney, Kelly Canary, um, who worked very hard, along with many students, to um, assist Ted over the years. And uh, and then when he was retried, uh, one of our alumni, Felix Luna, was um, volunteered to pro bono try his case along with Ms. Canary. And so it was a lot of, of individuals who worked very hard on Ted's behalf. And, and as he said, it was a really, and often is a really long struggle to get these cases 
through the system to a place where we can actually establish innocence in the courts. Yeah, and Anna, when you um, when you take a case back to a new trial where there's been DNA that exonerates the individual, is is it a full blown trial all over again? It is. I mean, you know, Ted had <clears throat> the joy of learning that there was DNA results that excluded him, identified another person's DNA profile. They unfortunately couldn't identify who that person was and have not yet been able to do so. Um, but it, I think it speaks to the power of, of false confessions, and, and we see this in so many cases that, um, as a result, the state just pushed forward with another trial. And, in fact, even though at the time of that trial Ted was out of custody, um, on community custody and supervision, had served his time in in a, imprisonment um, in a jail, but they uh, they went ahead and rearrested him and charged him again, put him through that trauma one more time, and then he faced mm. an, a complete full blown trial. This time um, they had the DNA, and they also had uh, experts to talk about the phenomena of false confessions and what happens to individuals that are put under extreme pressure by law enforcement. Um, mm-hmm. So it made a difference, and the jury understood this time. And who did you use as your expert for the false confessions? Do you know? Was it Richard Offshee in your case, Ted? It was uh, Dr. Leo. Yeah, Dr. Richard Dr. Leo. Yeah, Dr. he's making his actually. Yes. Yeah, uh, Dr. Leo has actually been on this show. Um, yeah, and he's, he's done uh, wonderful a, work in this area to help bring awareness uh, to the community and really is able to explain effectively to, to juries and others about what happens and, and how this how this occurs for individuals to be put in such a situation. I think it's hard for a lot of people to think, why would someone confess to something they didn't do? But until you're in that situation under the pressures, um, and it, it, it truly is a problem within the law enforcement community in terms of how those interrogations are handled. For sure, and uh, and there was a specific officer that um, was responsible for um, following Ted through the process, right? Was that one person, or were there several? Uh, there was several, because uh, there there was the two main detectives uh, that interrogated me that whole day, and there was also like a, a polygraph examiner that. Uh, was also involved with, you know, coercive tactics and, you know, huh. misleading stuff. Because they, you know, they, that whole day, it was nothing but, you know, threats, promises, you know, lies. Uh, my wife at the time actually uh, went out and got an attorney uh, who, as I said, they took me to another building clear across town here in Yakima. And my attorney had to basically hunt me down. And when he did find me over at the Yakima jail, um, the, those detectives wouldn't let him in to see me. In fact, they even lied to him and said, well, we told Mr. Bradford that you were out here wanting to talk to him. And he said he doesn't want to talk to you. Really? So was, yeah. So there was nothing my attorney could do. He, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't get in to see me and... Because, uh, you know, of course, he would have advised me not to speak any further. Uh, and 
and that's that's a scary thing that that happens. I think it happens prior a lot in these, mm-hmm. you know false confession cases. It happened in mine, and what happened with me is that you know they 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 read me my rights, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, we uh, Ted, were you arrested at home? Uh, or were yeah. you arrested? I, I was at home. You were and, at home, uh, okay. So they ask, you know, they read your rights, and uh, you know, at that when they did that, I remember asking one of the detectives if I, you know, do you think I need an attorney? <laughs> and he said, uh, "Well, I don't know. Do you?" And uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, there was all this pressure, and you know how it is in the movies uh, when somebody asks for an attorney. It's made to look like they're guilty automatically. Right. right. And so I didn't do this, so I, I didn't want them to think that I was guilty. So uh, at that time, I waived my rights to an attorney. So um, hmm. that that gave them more or less an excuse not to let my attorney in to see me. And, and Ted, your confession, um, what did you say? What did you agree that had happened well throughout the day uh you know with their questions and they you know they were telling me stuff they, you know i was asking them questions like well what happened you know where did this happen mm-hmm. you know because uh i wanted to help them out in any way that i could uh and i definitely wanted to you know prove that i didn't do it um uh, so it, I know it was just a, a long, hard day uh, of trying yeah. to get, get these detectives to believe me uh, that I didn't commit the crime. And and so um, as you went through the day, they provided you enough information about what uh, happened that you could that you then could. Put into a confession. Yeah, and, is that what happened? Yeah, and uh, at the end of the day, it was uh, basically I, I took some of the information that they had and uh, told them what they wanted to hear because uh, you know the whole day I was I was told that I was not going to leave that room until I told them the truth hmm. and their truth. Their truth. Their truth. Not your exactly. truth. Their truth. Yeah. And and what was it? Why were you on their radar to begin with? Uh, I, I have no idea. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, you know, the interesting thing is that Ted didn't yeah. even match the description that the victim had given police. And um, it's, you know, he, he the confession... Um, this is something we see in a lot of cases with with uh, people who have been in a position of of giving a false confession, where the facts of the confession are really inconsistent. With, I mean, there's some information that's matching, of course, but there's a lot of things, either really significant things missing or um, critical information that's just wrong. And uh, and still, the power of what you know what we call a confession in those right. cases overcomes. So it's. Um, it's really yeah. a challenge. 
And understandably, it's really hard for people to believe that somebody would actually admit to something they didn't do, particularly something as serious as a rape. You know, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to put yourself in that position, but at the same time, you're isolated for hours and hours and hours, and uh, you're being told all kinds of things that um, make you think. Probably, Ted, make you think like, "Wow, really? Is it possible?" <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I can. Well, I mean, it's well. The biggest factor for me, though, uh, like I said, was. Uh, when they told me that they had the the biological evidence, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I I thought for sure that they would, you know, they would test all that and it'd come back. So, you know, with that with that statement that I gave them, I, I figured that you know that wouldn't even matter if if they if they just tested the evidence. And uh, right, right, and you and you trusted the system to right. get you out of there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the whole. The whole uh, first trial, uh, you know, I thought for sure, you know, I, I was going home. Uh, you know, I thought for sure somebody was going to see that there was a mistake made or, you know, mm-hmm. they got the wrong guy. Uh, but as it turned out, you know, I was found guilty at that I first can't, trial. I can't imagine what you must have gone through when they read your verdict. Uh, it was It was horrible. It was the worst day of my life. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I just could not believe I was in shock. You know, I could not believe that I was found guilty for something I didn't do. Mm-hmm. And the woman who was raped, um, from what I read about the case, she really couldn't identify the person, right? Because he wore a stocking over his head. Uh, yeah, that's that's the way I, I've always understood it. Was she didn't get a, a really good look at him, but she did provide a description to the the police that, you know, responded on the scene, and she she said that her attacker was at least six foot one, six foot two, uh, looked like uh, he lifted weights or something like that, and I'm only 5'7", so okay. like, like Anna said, it, I, did, I didn't fit the description at all, so it, it's it's puzzling and frustrating that, you know, they would go ahead and uh, build this case against me when, you know, clearly I didn't fit the description at all, not even close. So. And did you live close to her? I mean, I, I just, um, I mean, what, do you know, Anna, what it was that made them target Ted? I don't know specifically what made them think that Ted was responsible for this. He, um, you know, it's one of those situations where police are put in situations as well where they they have a lot of pressure. I mean, a horrific crime has been committed and they want to find someone. And, and I don't, I think that many officers, you know, at least in the past, they, they probably don't have any reason to not understand it now. But back then, may not have understood this whole aspect of false confessions and how the techniques that they'd been trained to use really don't always bring out the truth. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, hopefully, you know, they learn from this process as well. But um, it's you know, as the case developed, certainly, uh, you know, Ted had an alibi. He had witnesses at work who testified that he was at work at the time of the crime. 
Yeah, I was going to um, ask that. So that so those and those witnesses were solid. Absolutely. As far as you know, I mean, Ted, yeah. Ted Ted had a Ted had a medical appointment that day. There were sort of all sorts of things that were able to to repiece together what you know what his actions had been, um, and so that's you know that's a, a whole other piece to this that. Again, going back when you have a false confession, it, it really tends to trump everything, and that's why the DNA became so critical uh, and was so critical for Ted's freedom. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there, um, there, there was also uh, my work records. I, I had a, a paycheck stub that showed that I got paid for that day. Uh, there was a calling sheet that, uh, if anybody calls in, they write it down in the front mm-hmm. office. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was nowhere on that call-in sheet for calling in. Uh, my own supervisor kept a notebook in his pocket, and on that day he wrote down, so-and-so went to the bathroom for 10 minutes, this person was late, there was nothing on there saying Ted Bradford didn't show up for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there there was a lot of alibi evidence, you know, in addition to the, you know, my coworkers uh, that testified at the first trial. Uh, but... As Anna said, when you have a confession as evidence, it, it's it's really hard to people. Right. You know, juries, I guess, and people tend to believe in that and put so much uh, weight to it. And did the coworkers that testified in the first trial testify in the second? I think uh, uh, two of them did. Okay. Because uh, I remember, yeah, actually, the one of the guys that I. I used to know when I worked at that place, he had to be flown in from Texas, I, I think. So. Hmm. Okay, and and then uh, how long after the rape were you arrested? How much time had elapsed? Do you know about approximately? Uh, it was uh, probably about six months. Really? Like that. Six months. And were there, was there any other corroborative evidence besides the, the victim's uh, testimony? Uh, no. The, 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 only, the only evidence they had was, was the false confession. That's it. That's all they had. Yep. How long was your first trial? Uh, I think it was uh, almost two weeks. I remember right. Okay. Well, what an experience. Um, then once you were convicted, what happened then? Where did you go from there? Um, well, uh, first I went to uh, Shelton where they have the receiving center uh, where they classify which prison you're going to go to. Uh and then from there, I went to Walla Walla for about a, a year. Um, and that was because I was classified as uh, uh, maximum security, closed custody. Mm-hmm. So I went to Walla Walla. And then after that, uh, Airway Heights over in Spokane. Uh, and from there, I went to Colorado. There was uh, overcrowding in the prison system back in 1999. and. 2000 around that time, so they they flew a lot of us down to Colorado. I think there was about 400 or 500 inmates from Washington State that were flown down there. 
Didn't you go to uh, Canyon City in Colorado? Canyon, the prison in Canyon City? Uh, no, it was a place called Crowley County Correctional mm-hmm. Facility, that privately run prison. Um, and then from there, uh, I went to back to Washington State, uh, to Stafford Creek, still by Aberdeen. Uh, and, and that's where uh, I was released from was Stafford Creek. What a day that was, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How um, how much how much time were you there after you found out you were going to be released? Uh, actually, uh, in my case, I, I did my entire sentence. Uh, I was released in 2005. Uh, really? Yeah, and. You know, it's it's really hard to get back into the court system. Mm-hmm. You know, you know after after a guilty verdict, it's really hard to get back in there. Uh, but the Innocence Project, you know, they were having all this these tests done on the evidence and everything. And uh, I'm sure if it was up to us, you know, it'd be it'd be done in a week or a day. You know, but yeah. the court system, you know, it takes so long. Uh, it does. It's cumbersome. Yeah, so I, I actually did my entire sentence, the 10 years, uh, continued to fight the case, you know, even after I was released uh, in 2007, uh, two years after I was released. That's when uh, my case was uh, overturned and I was granted the right to a new trial uh, based on the new DNA evidence that they found. You know that's um, that's unusual, isn't it, Anna? To, I mean, I, at least it feels unusual to me that um, somebody get is actually serves their time and gets out, and there is still a claim of innocence is pursued. Isn't that somewhat? It is somewhat unusual because yeah. most of the people that we are assisting are still in prison, um, and in Ted's case, you know, we had been assisting him since 2002 and so uh, they had been fighting to get the DNA testing accomplished and um, and ultimately it, it was you know that that process if you're not getting agreement from the state is very time-consuming to litigate that in the courts and then the testing processes themselves are very time-consuming um, in this case the the crime lab technician who worked on Ted's case uh, just really had to do some very, I think, difficult and challenging DNA testing in order to get, um, find the specific pieces of the evidence that would be testable. In this case, there was a mask that the perpetrator had put over the yeah, victim's Anna, excuse, excuse me a second. Let me, could you hang on to that thought? I want to get into that a little bit more. And we need to take sure. a break. Um, Ted Bradford and Anatolia will be right back after the break. Stay tuned. This is really interesting. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Ted Bradford is now a free man after his innocence was proven by DNA. Actually, he was a free man before his innocence was proven, which is interesting. He got out of prison, and then they pursued his case, and it was proven later. He's here with Anna Tolan, an attorney with the Innocence Project uh, Northwest. Okay, Anna, you were talking about the uh, testing of the DNA. Go ahead. I interrupted you. Sure. Yeah, Ted's case was really remarkable in that the the DNA testing that was conducted by the Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory was, um, you know, using really the at that time the most modern technology, um, and the technician was able to very carefully work with the evidence that had been left at the scene, which was a a mask like a Lone Ranger type mask with black uh, electrician's tape over the eye area. And um, because of the substances, the, the back of the tape, um, the person's basically fingerprints or finger, uh, the DNA from their skin cells mm-hmm. had been left on the mask. And uh, wow. they were able to isolate those, those cells and test them and come up with a DNA profile that was clearly not Ted Bradford's and belonged to another individual. Uh, and the courts and jury found that compelling. Interesting. And did, um, so I'm, I'm wondering in this case, it doesn't sound like they had anything um, like this, but did they try to say that he was still involved even though um, it was his DNA, that he, that he was assisting or there, he was with somebody else or something like that? Ted can probably tell you if there were different arguments at trial, but my understanding was that they just argued, I think they argued that it was not relevant, that it, you know someone else could have touched that and Ted was still the perpetrator. Uh, and, and unfortunately that, you know, it's, I'm hearing you chuckle at that, but we, we hear some remarkable changes of theories and um, justifications for why we should ignore very compelling and powerful DNA evidence in our cases. It's just really challenging for people to acknowledge these mistakes in our system. 
Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you probably don't know, Anna, or Ted, either one. I'm, I'm also a private investigator and I work with the Innocence Project in, in, uh, Northern California Innocence Project and I do, um, serious criminal cases. So I, I do understand the, um, the dilemma. I mean, it's really a dilemma that we, uh, are confronted with constantly with cases. And particularly when you're talking about uh, somebody that is making a claim of innocence, it's very it's very difficult to recreate the wheel. <laughs> it's very difficult. Okay, so um, so they were able to. Why, why did it take four more years after his DNA was not identified to get to trial? Uh, I remember there was a there was a lot of continuances uh, that would have to show up down at the courthouse uh, probably every couple months, uh, and the the courtroom that they they always had these hearings in was in the basement of the Yakima County Jail, so that was that was pretty tough having to go through that again, you know. <laughs> so you couldn't uh, even go on with your life, right? Because uh, actually. Uh, well, see, my, my case was overturned in 2007, and uh, I thought I was free and clear and, uh, you know, could move on with my life. But in 2008, uh, two police officers showed up at my house and oh my gosh. and told me that I was under arrest for, you know, an old case from 1996. And, uh, you know, I tried explaining to them, hey, I'm, I'm wanting to prove my innocence. Why do you guys have to arrest me? Just give me a court date and I'll show up. Uh, but, of course, they were just doing their job, so they handcuffed me, took me down to the jail. I spent this, uh, a night in jail. Uh, the next day at my arraignment, uh, the judge actually released me on OR, uh, so I didn't have to post any bail. Uh, and I'm so thankful that he did because... This was in 2008, and it wasn't until 2010 that the trial got underway. So if he didn't release me on OR, I would have been right. sitting in jail that whole time awaiting the second trial. But, so. you know, this is astonishing, actually. Um, so you served your time. You served yep. your complete time. Yep. You're out. You're living your life, and they come and arrest you again for the same crime. How can that right. be? Uh well, well, technically, uh, what we asked for in our motion was the right to a new trial based on the new DNA evidence. Uh, that was our only relief that we could get, was to ask for this new trial. Uh, mm-hmm. They granted that in 2007 when they overturned my conviction. Uh, of course, we didn't think that the state was actually going to go through with the second trial, we figured, you know, the DNA evidence speaks for itself. Uh, I think, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they they uh, retried me. They, they had me arrested and hmm. uh, went through a second trial, which lasted, I think, about a week. Um, I can't, I'm just, just sitting here, uh, Ted, trying to put my my mind into the place where you were when you were arrested at your house the second time <laughs> um, you must have had PTSD you you must have just thought this can't possibly be happening right yeah because uh, it, it, 
it's just unbelievable, you know. And in fact, I sat there and argued with these two police officers for at least 15, 20 minutes on why why I shouldn't be taken, you know, into custody and arrested again. Uh, mm-hmm. And and they actually, I I think they actually understood what was going on because uh, you know they they really wanted to you know help they. Uh, they understood the case more or less, and well, like uh, for instance, how often do you see uh, somebody arguing with detectives on whether or not they're going to be arrested? Well, that's you know? true. That's, and then they usually get arrested for resisting arrest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, but, uh, and, what, and go ahead. So, and the detective, the detective on the original case, was he still involved? Uh, no, um, I think, that, well, they they went on to different parts of the the police department. One one of them uh, moved up to, he is now a captain, and the other one mm. is a patrol officer. They're no, okay. Neither one of them are detectives any longer. Okay, all right. So you must have some ideas um, from very personal experience, Ted, on what kinds of things can be done to pre- prevent this from happening to other people. Uh, yeah. What, what's, uh, what, what ideas big, do you have? A big one uh, would be videotaping or video recording of uh, interviews and interrogations. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in my case, uh, they had the technology to to record the the whole process, but they only did a audio tape recording after after the day was done, and I agreed to give them a statement. That's the only time the tape recorder came on. Uh, yeah, I think so it's you were there important. nine hours. And, yeah. yeah, and they only uh, audio recorded like the last half hour or whatever it was. Right. Uh, I think that would help in preventing wrongful convictions because, you know, that way a jury can see for themselves what the interrogation was like, what the questioning, how it went. Because mm-hmm. uh, as it is, you know, there's just the he said, he said thing coming out of this because, you know, they they claim that they didn't threaten me in any way, that they never promised me anything, and they clearly did. You know, they, they told me over and over that... I wasn't leaving until I told them what they wanted to hear. Um, and also that whole day I didn't have anything to eat. So a few mm. times uh, one of the detectives was telling me, well, uh, as soon as you make a statement, oh, we'll, we'll take you to get you something to eat wherever you want to, wherever you want to go, hmm. basically. And uh, so the jury was, you know, faced with this, well, who do we believe? these officers or this guy that's on trial. And if it was videotaped, you know, the jury could see that for themselves. What happened. Well, and you know, I mean, frankly, if you were sitting on a jury, it would be tough. I mean, if you put yourself in a juror's shoes, it would be tough to sit there and listen to officers who you're supposed to respect and believe compared mm-hmm. to somebody that's accused of a crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, ha- you have to put that equation in because that it happens so often, but at the same time, 
they're only hearing a very bird's eye view of the case. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and another big problem with uh, that causes wrongful convictions, I guess it's the number one cause of wrongful convictions is uh, eyewitness misidentification. Yeah. Uh, they need to yeah. change some policies with that. Uh, you know, as far as like lineups, uh, mm-hmm. how they do uh, their lineup procedures and things like that. Yeah. And there's a lot of controversy about that as well, Ted, as you, you, well, you, I'm sure you know. Now, did, did you have to do a physical lineup or was it a, a photo lineup? Uh, in mine, it was a photo lineup. Okay. All right. So the, the victim was shown, what was it, like a six pack, you know, six pictures on a page and she yeah. picked one? Yeah. Uh, and I was never, identified or picked out of the lineup in my case because uh, from what I understand she she really didn't get a good look at the guy so she couldn't mm-hmm. okay. you know, identify his face or anything okay and then Anna are you folks I know I know uh, a lot of the innocence projects are working on the eyewitness identification piece uh, are you guys uh, incorporating that into your process Yes, we, we actually have a policy director, Lara Zarowski, who just worked very hard um, in conjunction with a number of folks to put on a, a great presentation a couple of weeks ago at the law school about um, using science and eyewitness practices in within law enforcement to help improve those practices. So it's absolutely an area that we hope to continue to educate the public about and um, would like to see better procedures implemented um, through the laws, and that's is happening, as you I'm sure know, across the country in uh, with different results in different places. So mm-hmm. we are hoping that Washington will make good choices in the future and start to implement some of those best practices that can ensure that when there are those kinds of identifications, that they're as accurate as possible. Um, we just we all know that the the human mind can be really fallible, and um, and yet for so many years, we've we've really built our criminal justice system on those kinds of identifications, and yeah. we're just we're learning now what a horrific mistake that has been. Seventy-five percent of the cases involving DNA exonerations were false or, or incorrect eyewitness identifications. Yeah, yeah, and it, you know, and it's such powerful evidence in court, but it's so fallible. It's just, uh, and are, do you are you a proponent of the single photo photo? Um, presentation versus the six pack i mean i i think that there are there are a lot you know there's a lot of dissension as to which is better (laughs) um and uh, at this point we don't even have the sort of basic procedures implemented for um having blind administration and the kinds of things that um that are so critical um so we are just working to get those procedures. And we, we actually, um, Ms. Rowski has, has partnered with some folks within law enforcement. We've got um, a professor, Stephen Ross, at the University of Washington, Tacoma, with, who has uh, an extensive experience with it, working with law enforcement and eyewitness procedures. And they are just really working to study and, and assess the various methods and come up with a practical approach that, you know, that, it, that can be done within the communities and, and hopefully be accepted by, by law enforcement. Um, so that's, you know, that is in the works and we are, mm-hmm. we are hopeful that we'll get 
progress on that in the near future. And just in educating the, the legal community about how to, how to deal with this evidence and judges as well. So. Right. And when you talk about blind administration, you're talking about somebody giving, doing the photo lineup that isn't involved in the case itself. Is that right. what you're talking right. about? We so often, we so often yeah. have situations where the person, you know, looks at it and they're given, you know, nonverbal cues or uh-huh. they're told ahead of time, okay, the guy's there or yeah, you picked the right person. And then that, then that choice becomes solidified in, in right. the, the witness's mind. So, um, those, those different techniques. Yeah. And, you know, and in fairness, we should say that some of those times it's not inten- it's not intentional that they're giving the nonverbal cues. Sometimes right. it is, of course, but sometimes it isn't even intentional. Absolutely. From, from the law enforcement perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, of course, this doesn't really have that much to do with, <laughs> with Ted's case, but, but it is interesting. I'm glad you guys are pursuing that. Um, is there any new um, developments on DNA that you could talk about? Well, we, you know, one of the things that has really been powerful is the ability to just test smaller and smaller amounts of DNA. Um, the, the development of YSTR DNA, which was allowing um, the, the technology that could separate male and female DNA in a sample, uh, has just been a huge breakthrough in sexual assault cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even in the, the drawback of those cases is those profiles aren't matched in CODIS yet. We hope that will change. But there's there is so much ability now to use much teenier amounts of, of cellular material, of biological material, um, that the touch DNA has just really allowed a lot more test results in a lot more cases across the country and, um, you know, becomes a challenge with old evidence, uh, mm-hmm. especially evidence that may have been touched by multiple people. So the one development that's, I think, really remarkable is their ability, scientists' ability to separate right. multiple samples of DNA and, and, and identify through their amazing abilities with math and science to, to sort those profiles out and say, uh, here is a single profile and then Ultimately, if they can match that to a person, that becomes uh, incredibly powerful in a case. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, yeah. every every day we we had a we had a case very recently with really disappointing results because they was they couldn't get a sample uh, from an old slide that was finally located after evidence had been destroyed. And um, you know, the scientists say, well, in five to ten years, we'll be able to get a sample. We'll be able to take that sample and get a result because it's rapidly advancing. So we are really grateful for the amazing work that that our scientists are doing in this field. Yeah, it's really good news. And in your case, um, uh, when we were offline here, we were talking that the the state crime lab did the uh, retesting of the DNA. And that's uh, just to get that accomplished without having to go to an outside lab and spending huge amounts of money to get it done is amazing in itself. Yeah, we have a really remarkable collaboration with our State Patrol Crime Laboratory and, um, you know, the scientists there care very much about the truth and uh, even though they're a part of the State Patrol and a law enforcement agency per se, um, they they are doing their best to try to obtain real valid results and um, and are very happy to work with us on these cases. So we're very grateful for that relationship. I know that's not something that's enjoyed by all of the different projects across the country. Um, no, that's, that's really special. That's really special. 
because you know i mean that means that people really want on both sides want to have the truth not just a result right and and they also work i mean they collaborate they have a contract with an outside lab that does more advanced dna that um you know that we don't do in our in-state lab yet but they continue to grow that practice within the labs as well uh, and that's with the hair microscopy which is a huge issue right now uh, since we've learned and that the Justice Department has finally acknowledged in the FBI that the the testimony that's given in many cases where they did matches to hairs from a suspect and a victim uh, or a crime scene that those were were in many cases very problematic and and invalid. Mm -hmm. So so that's a new development. It used to be the testing you could do in those cases was rare because you needed tissue from the end root of the hair and now they can actually do a test just from a tiny piece of hair. So that's another that's, great that's, advancement. Yeah, that's incredible. So, Anna, would you like, um, uh, I know you're in with the Project Innocent Northwest. Uh, would you like to give the website or our contact information in case somebody's listening to this show that would be interested in either um, assisting with your project or getting involved or maybe uh, has a case of innocence? Sure. Our website is www.ipnw.org. The Innocence Project Northwest, and we are at the University of Washington School of Law. So, application information, um, information about the work we're doing, um, fundraising, different things, all available on our website. And um, really appreciate all the support. Yeah, and so um, um, you operate often by contribution. Is that correct? Correct. We okay. uh, much of our funding comes from from donors and grants, so we very much rely on that to have the resources to have attorneys and staff to do the work. These cases just take tremendous resources to investigate, and yeah. um, and we we couldn't do it without private donations. Yeah. And is there a donate button on your website? Website. There is. Good. Okay. So on the website at www.ipn.org. Did I get that right? I. IPNW. IPNW.org, yeah, thank you. Um, and then if somebody has a claim of innocence, somebody's listening to this show and their loved one is in prison right now and they believe in their innocence, there's an application they could print out and get to their, um, their person to send in to you. Yes, or they can have their, um, their loved one write to us directly or they can get the application and send it to them. We'll, we send out applications on prisoner requests or family requests very regularly. So we'd be happy to, to do that. Do you have an idea, Anna, how many applications you get a month or a year? Yeah, I think our, our last look, we were averaging 30 to 50 applications per month. You know, that, that comes and goes at different times, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have significant requests for assistance. Unfortunately, we do have a significant backlog, but we are always working to review those cases, and our students are working to move investigations forward. Um, and we've got a number of active cases, and our project does take both DNA and non-DNA cases. So okay. we're, not, we're not limited to DNA in our, in our caseload. And you're also not limited to, uh, uh, to the type of case. Is that correct? Does That's it matter correct. what? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. And so, if do you have any um, recommendations to somebody that might be listening that that would want to go through this process? If they are looking for our assistance, 
Uh-huh. The, the very the very first step is to get that application filled out. We we've got to have information directly from the prisoner requesting our assistance and release forms signed so that we can obtain necessary documents and information about you know, where their case is and what to look for so that we can begin that process of document collection and um, and looking into what happened in their case uh, and whether whether there's new evidence or whether there's the potential for DNA testing that could establish uh, that they, in fact, are innocent. Okay. All right. Great. Well, we're almost at the end of the, the hour here. We didn't take a break, Anna and Ted, because this uh, your story was just so compelling. I, I just didn't want to... I didn't want to separate it, uh, or we did would take the one break, but uh, not the normal one. So, uh, Ted, thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us. Your your message, your story, and your and what you're doing to um, change the rules of the justice system is really important, and I hope you continue with it. And congratulations for being exonerated. It just has to feel feeling like a free man has to be just. A breath of it's, fresh air. Yes, it's it's awesome. It's pretty great. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and Anna, th- you know, thank you too for your good work. Uh, you guys, the students there at uh, University of Washington, and and your staff at the Innocence Project. You guys do good work, and it's and it's often thankless work because it's often doesn't you don't get anywhere, and you know there's there's something there, and you can't get to it. So uh, I know that's really hard, and. and there are many of us out here that appreciate the work you do. Thank you. We're really grateful for your bringing attention to these issues. Yeah, and if I hear anything, I certainly will pass it on. And uh, if anybody contacts me to, to for more information about your project, I will refer them to you. Absolutely. So, Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, and folks, if you're interested in advertising on PIs Declassified, you can contact my wonderful producer of this show, Sandra Rogers, at sandra.rogers, it's S-A-N-D-R-A dot R-O-G-E-R-S, at voiceamerica.com. That's Voice America, one word. And... The next few weeks will be our Gift of Exoneration series featuring actual cases of people who have been in prison for crimes they didn't permit, just like, didn't permit, didn't commit, uh, just like Ted. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you, Anna and Ted. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for the